1 Samuel 18. We're going to pick up kind of mid-chapter where we left off at verse 12. You can put your finger there. I'll eventually get there. Heavenly Father, now as we always like to do, just ask your blessing. We open the Bible and we pray your spirit open our eyes and our hearts to do your will. In Christ's name, amen. Well, David is in an interesting position, isn't he? Now, a couple chapters ago, he was anointed by Samuel, the high priest, to be Israel's true king. Even though just a teenage boy at the time, a couple chapters ago anyway, but with a deep love and faith in God. Now, whether David knew the specifics at that time when he was anointed there, uh, coming up from the sheepfold or not, uh, I'm not sure he really understood the significance of uh, that flask in hand and the oil and Samuel's kind of anointing. Uh, But surely now, two chapters later, and all the events that have transpired, he's getting it. He's catching on. My, oh my, the Lord has chosen me, not even 21 years old yet, to be king of Israel. I mean, can you hear him thinking? He's like, I mean, the high priest finds me in the sheep pen, anoints me. I find myself facing a giant. I was in the right place at the right time and, and uh, unarmed with just a slingshot. I'd take down a nine-foot giant that nobody in the army could take down. And now I'm becoming famous and uh, I'm hired as a part-time worship uh, uh, harpist player to the king. I'm in the palace now. I mean, he's connecting the dots. I'm getting closer and closer to this throne that has been kind of uh, hovering about ever since Samuel anointed him. Wherever I go, he's thinking, whatever I do, it's all pointing to one very awesome conclusion. God wants me to be king over his people over his inheritance and now he's probably starting to like the sound of that because he's excited to do God's will as it unfolds now the problem of course as we get going to get into chapter 18 here is uh, that there's already a king on the throne and for uh, all appearance it, it looks like God has placed that king there first uh, Samuel chapter 10 uh, Samuel, the same Samuel, high priest, has uh, got the flask of oil over Saul's head and says, uh, has not the Lord God chosen you to be king over his inheritance? And then the next chapter, First Samuel chapter 11, it's confirmed with all of Israel having a kind of coronation service there. Uh, So all the people went and confirmed Saul as king in the presence of the Lord, and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Surely David and Father Jesse and all the brothers were there, all Israels, celebrating. So as far as David is concerned, he has some conflicting ideas going on. Because last he heard... The Lord had put Saul on the throne. So what is God doing? Well, in the remaining chapters, verses, uh, chapters rather, 18 through 31, 14 chapters to go to the end, 
Uh, you, we are, among other things, going to have a character study about self-called leaders and God-called leaders. Self-called leaders, like Saul, are all about the outward, the gifts. They're driven by ego. They're insecure. They're jealous. They manipulate. They're, as modern lingo goes, they're haters. They uh, throw spears and they deceive. God called leaders like David are led in love. They're filled with faith and trust in God. They don't have selfish ambition. They want to be about their father's business. They live, they're supposed to live humble and submitted lives for the glory of God. They dodge spears. They don't throw them. So who's who? Sometimes it's hard to know, isn't it? Because self-called leaders are very gifted and they have good qualities and they're attractive like King Saul. God-called leaders can fail miserably and make grievous mistakes as we see in David's life. Now, God knows who's who. And Samuel knows who's who, and Saul knows who's who, but no one's talking. So the problem is that sometimes it takes 14 chapters to figure it out, or 10, 15, 20 years. And why does God not tell right away? He doesn't expose he lets things go and unravel, but you know what he does? He's testing everybody's hearts, isn't he? He's looking for other God-called leaders, and he's revealing them, and he's exposing would-be leaders, but after the order of King Saul. And so um, Saul's been fired, and he knows it, and Samuel knows it, and God knows it. But nobody else, that's funny, King Saul doesn't promote that kind of information. So here in chapter 18, as we kind of pick up where we left off, uh, David is being revealed as the real deal through all of this because David is not going to make this happen. He's going to let God make it happen. So really, that's the bottom line. For when God's at work in a, in a genuine way in somebody's life, in a sincere way, is that they are not in control trying to make something happen. They're cooperating with God. They're not just kicking back and, and in, in practical ways disengaging. They are just not making it happen. They are working with God um, for God's glory. And so in verse 14, you just see the whole key to David's success and his blessed life. Uh, unfortunately, the NIV, and I hate to say that because I love the NIV, has kind of a weaker translation. Verse 14 says, in everything he did, David, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And I told you last time, and, and the new NIV has a footnote that says, or he was very wise. Because the word in Hebrew is kind of using wisdom he succeeded. So there's no other way to say it in English, but you can say that sort of in Hebrew. And so the King James has it better. 
and David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was pleased with him. That's it. The key to a happy, blessed life is behaving wisely in all of our ways. The Proverbs just loaded with all kinds of motivation to find wisdom and to live by it. David had it. Do you have that kind of wisdom? And if you don't, remember James 1.5. That was in my head because I, it's loaded in here uh, earlier this evening. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who will generously give you the wisdom. And then it says, without finding fault, which is kind of an obscure meaning. What does that mean? It means he's not looking at your life and saying, hey, you know, you're asking me for wisdom, but what about this and what about that? He's, he, no, you just asked, hey, I don't know what to do here. I need some wisdom. And God isn't saying, well, you got to qualify for it. He says, I'm just going to pour it out on you just for the asking and then, you know, later in the epistle, he says, you know what? You don't have because you don't ask. So, and then you ask, and then you have all the wrong motives. And so it's kind of a, uh, a hard little road there. Uh, but it's there available if we do it right. And so uh, here's the context for picking up at verse 12. The soldiers are pulling back into town after uh, David had killed Goliath, and they had routed the enemy and, and have taken the plunder. You remember last week, they're singing uh, I made up the little contemporary uh, song, Saul, Saul, he's our man. If he can't do it, David can. And Saul was enraged. He was, in the Hebrew, bent out of shape. He's saying, he's saying, really, it really bothered him. And he's saying, uh, David is now after my job. And uh, like that's going to happen. And so Saul's got a jealous, suspicious eye on David, and we pick up where we left off, verse 12. Now, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. Was he behaved wisely? Verse 15. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And so we're going to start here. Even though I read this, I didn't really talk about it last week. Uh, uh, Roman numeral number one, fear and the empty heart. Fear and the empty heart. When there's no Holy Spirit to whisper, in your heart, when there's no promise from God to assure you, to anchor you, when there's no presence of the Lord to encourage you, everything inside and outside is subject to instability and fear. Now, while the righteous are bold as a lion, as the Proverbs say, the wicked are afraid of their own shadow as well they should be. So twice, the Holy Spirit wants you to see that empty-hearted Saul is a man driven by fear. So actually, three times in this chapter, it's gonna, the Holy Spirit's going to tell you this man is driven by fear. Uh, verse 12, 
verse 15, and then we're going to see it later on in the chapter. Now, what's he so afraid of? Well, he's afraid that David is going to like him, uh, like He's afraid that people are going to like David better than him. He's scared that uh, he'll be seen as a failure. Uh, He's terrified that he's going to be found out because he knows the truth. The Lord has said it very plainly twice in the preceding chapters. You're out of a job. Step aside. Finished with you in this capacity. So he's afraid. He lives in fear. Fear characterized his life, and it was was present when he got fired. The reason he got fired, why did he get fired? Well, it was a long time in coming, but the last straw, what was it? Back in chapter 15, the Lord told him what to do. He didn't do it. The Lord sends Samuel, go find him and fire him. So he goes and finds him, and he says, hey, did you do what the Lord told you to do? He says, absolutely not. He didn't say the not part, but he didn't. So uh, here's, what, here's how it went down. And then Saul, uh, Samuel says, why did you do that? Why did you disobey? And he says there in verse 24 of 15, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. This is a guy who is, has an empty heart. He doesn't have a relationship with God. And so, of course, he's, he's got no conviction. He's got no purpose. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know who the Lord is. There's no sense of identity, no obligation to God, no fear of the Lord. And where there's no fear of the Lord, there's fear of everything else. Now, he's even afraid to repent. What if I did? What if I repent? <laughs> What if David outshines me, and what if I lose my position, and what if I'm seen as a failure, and what if he's a better king than I, and what will people think about me? And if I do, what will will I end up doing? I'm going to retire, or what? What does God have for me? I'm going to be like a doorkeeper for King David? What if, what if, fears, 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 and they drive him, and they drive him mad. They drive him crazy. Now, interesting to me, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, and I throw this in for free, it's an unpleasant thought. That's probably why I'm doing it, (laughs) for free. (laughs) Here's a list of those who are perishing. And uh, John is writing, and here it is. But the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, Those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars will find their place in hell. This is the second death. I took out the first adjective. I don't know if you caught that. It it doesn't start with, but outside are the unbelieving. The first category is outward, outside are the cowardly. Wow. So being a coward is enough to send you to hell? Well, let me quote somebody here. John is not speaking of natural timidity, but of that cowardice which which in the last resort chooses self and safety before Christ. Saul's that kind of guy. He's got an empty heart. He's afraid of everything. But most of all, he's afraid to say no to himself 
and yes to God. And therein goes all Saul-type figures, afraid to lose self to find Christ, because it's the only way you find Christ is to lose yourself. And if you're afraid to do that, that's not going to go well with you. So with a fearful, guilty conscience leading the way, and with an empty heart filled with insecurity and self, every time Saul sees the real deal, David, he's afraid, your text tells you. He, here comes a, a guy into his presence who just smacks of genuine relationship with God. David knows who he is because he knows who the Lord is. He's a man who's bold and confident and has a shiny countenance and he's at peace with himself and with others. And that's all, 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 all Saul had to do was look at that bright spark in his eye, the radiance on his face, the calm, the peace, the ordered, the integrity, the fear of the Lord. That was enough and it just made him Afraid, All those fears, every time he was around David, came rushing to the surface. Too bad, because the Lord's love is the remedy for a fear-driven life. But Saul will have none of it. The love that surpasses knowledge, Paul writes to the Colossians, to the Philippians, a peace that transcends understanding. And a will for our lives that beats anything that we could perceive or plan. Now moving on, verses 17 through 19. So Saul says to David, here's my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. Sorry. (laughs) For Saul said to himself... I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Hmm. Oh, that's a good hissing sound, like a snake. (laughs) All right, verse 18. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merib, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. Hmm. Well, that sounds like an interesting place and a good name for a guy, the other guy who gets the woman that you deserve and were promised to, Adriel. Who got the woman? Adriel of Mahola. <laughs> All right. So number one was fear and the empty heart. Number two, then, is going to be deception and the unregenerated spirit. Now, it was Sir Walter Scott who said, and we've used this verse before from his poem, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, which means if you're going to be a liar, you better be a good one because it's going to take a lot of work to keep all your lying and your stories uh, in check. So now Saul will set a trap or the multiple traps for David, but David escapes and will be blessed. And so here we have in verse 17, uh, you remember the prize for killing Goliath. What was it? You become the king's son-in-law and you get one of the girls. Wouldn't that be nice? So that was back in um, 
chapter 17, verse 25. And so now it's time to pay up. He killed Goliath. Where's the daughter? And so, you know, he's probably being pressured by somebody. Saul, hey, remember the promise? You know, David's not asking, but, you know, you did promise. So, uh, so he says, hey, listen, about my daughter Merib. Now, I don't need a dowry. He's just going to say, I only want two things from you. Okay, a dowry back in the day was the price you would pay for the bride to the bride's family. And what it functioned as was kind of advanced alimony or, or life insurance. Because if something happened to the husband, whether death or divorce, the, why, the, the woman goes back to dad and then there's monies there to support. And so him being a king there'd be a big price to pay. He says, you know what? I only want a couple things. One, just that you're loyal to me, and two, that you fight the battles of the Lord. Now, the Holy Spirit outs his true motive, doesn't he? He says, oh, but by the way, he was thinking to himself. I love when God does that. He just tells you what he was thinking because the Lord knows what everybody's thinking. So he says, well, by the way, Saul was thinking, look at your text to himself. But the Holy Spirit heard it, and he's telling all of us. And he says, here's what he was thinking. Here's his true motives. He wants David dead. So he wants to take advantage of David's courage and his heart for the Lord. So in proposing the marriage, Saul is saying, so look, nice guy that I am. Let's forget about the whole spear-throwing thing. I, uh, the two times I tried to kill you, look, I want to make you my son-in-law now. So let's forgive and forget you know, uh, all's forgotten and forgiven. Just be a good boy to me. Kill lots of Philistines, the enemy, and hopefully you'll get killed. Uh, I mean, hopefully no one will kill you, is what I meant. And I'll wave the dowry of thousands of shekels, even though, oh, I forgot that this was supposed to be a prize for you and, and, and not having to pay something, but we were going to pay you for ridding Israel of a nine-foot beast called Goliath. Oh, yeah, we forget all about that. So then he says, deal? Now, I love David. He refuses to be cynical. He, you never hear him saying, hey, everybody, he tried to kill me two times. He's sending me out there. He's sending me out there, so I'm going to get killed. He doesn't mean a word of this. And then you could see Saul would be denying it anyway. What good is it? He doesn't become like Saul because he's David. He loves the Lord. He trusts God. He's not cynical. I love his response in verse 18. He says, who am I? You know, he, he doesn't believe his own press. Everybody's talking, you killed a nine-foot giant. Forty days he came out. Not even King Saul did that, man, and you're only 18 years old. Oh, you know, God's taking you places, kid. His anointing's on you. You're going to be something big. You already are. Look at your life. He says, you know what? I know who I am. I don't buy all of that. I remember the sheep pen. I know where he found me. I know what I'm capable of. I know the inside of my heart that you all don't see. All you see is how God's using me. You don't know me. You don't know my private self. And so leaders with anointing never believe all the things they're hearing from people who don't know them. 
they only see the Lord using them. And so he's smart enough not to, as Philippians chapter 2 says, think more highly of yourself than you ought to. So he says, who am I? Seriously, are you sure you want to go through with this? I know you promised her, but you don't have to do it. I mean, you know, considering who I am and my family and where you found me and all of that. He means it. And now, notice verse 19, a real dirty move on the part of King Saul. At the last minute, check your text out. It's right before the wedding. There's a sudden switch. Saul gives her to some other boy. Adriel of Mahola. <laughs> He's the other guy. Now, Adriel will become the name of the dog in the palace when David is in there. Another guy gets what David was promised and what he deserves. And you don't hear him whining, I'm such a victim. First you try to kill me. Then you promise me the daughter. And then you're going to give her to somebody else right at the last second. My family was coming. They were on the way. And it's like they show up and they get to the church and boom, Adriel of Mahola <laughs> is standing there. That's terrible. David could be incensed. He could be snapped. He could be outraged. He could be standing there going, excuse me. Where was Adriel of Mahola when I was facing the giant? <laughs> he was cowering behind some guy like a little girl who's afraid of the big bad wolf. And I took care of business and now he gets the prize. He's not like that. He's David. He's not Saul. And sometimes the Sauls in our lives prove that we're more like the Saul in our lives than we thought because we become just like them. We stoop to their level. David says, ah, I'm not stooping to that level because I'm David. I know who I am. I know what's going on. The Lord sees all of this. He's a big God. He's very powerful, and he will right my wrongs, not I. He lives his whole life that way. He never goes after Saul, never. He dodges the spear, but he won't pick it up, and he won't throw it. He's no victim. He is not a victim. You know, he could start a whole long list about being a victim, but he doesn't because you know what? And here's the line. Let it go straight into your soul. He's not a victim because his fate isn't in the hands of his attacker. It's in the hands of God. He sees past Saul to the Lord. And he's not trusting in how Saul is going to be behaving someday to get his codependent feeling of wellness. That's what codependent means. You're codependent if, you're, if your emotional state of wellness is dependent upon whether this person is sober or not or acting out or not. So everything's tied and dependent upon my wellness is dependent on if this. You know what? Mature Christians are not codependent because we're anchored to God. 
Our lives are hid in Christ and God. Does it matter what Saul is saying? Pontius Pilate, don't you realize who I am? I could stop this whole thing. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. It's the power of heaven that gives you the authority to do anything you do. Mature Christianity goes past the whole victim mentality and entrusts the soul to God, not uh, the spouse or the boss or the victimizer. Is that a word? Good. I took a chance. All right. John Trapp, here's a commentator from the 1600s on this verse. This humiliating disgrace was done purposely speaking about the switcheroo with uh, Mahola, boy. (laughs) This humiliating disgrace was done purposely to David to provoke him to do or say something that might get him into trouble with the royal protocol and give Saul some reason to get rid of David. But David's smarter than that. He leaves his disappointments and injustices always with God for God to vindicate him. He deals with it. He accepts it. He grieves and he goes forward. In God's plan. So when Saul's plans fail, Saul should get this as a warning. You know, Saul's thinking, look, I'm going to give him a thousand men, send him out so he can get himself killed. He'll either get killed or he'll lose eventually and he'll lose popularity. And so instead of either of those two options happening, uh, he's remaining alive and he's getting more and more popular. That should send a message to the manipulator, your plans are failing, it's futile. God is speaking to Saul's heart over and over again. My hand is on David, stop trying to kill him or have him killed, your manipulation's not gonna work. Would Saul listen? Let's find out. We'll go from verse 20 all the way to the end. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, is how you say the word in the Hebrew. Everyone calls her Michael. It's Michal, but I'll call her Michael just so we're all comfortable. (laughs) Now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. By the way, Michal means brook, and so really her name is Brook. Let's call her Brooke. <laughs> At least she's not from Mahola, wherever that is. <laughs> All right, moving on. And when they told Saul about it, okay, so Michal's got a crush. Michael's got a crush on David. And this makes Saul very happy. Verse 21. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him lovely, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second grand opportunity to become my son-in-law. Verse 22, and then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? 
I'm only a poor man and little known. That line gives, you, gives it away. He's asking for a dowry. So he's saying, hey, I'm poor. I can't afford it anyway. When Saul's servant told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Okay, Saul, Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, in marriage. Now, you know where I always say, man, I wish I could have a visual of that. No. No. Verse 28. When, when Saul realized, oh, if you're visiting, how many are visiting for the first time tonight? I just... Want to see if we do have somebody in the back. Well, welcome. <laughs> Praise God. Hallelujah. Wow. And there he was, counting them all out. 28. Dear Lord, save me. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michael, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. Here comes the driving fear. And he re remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, as they often did. David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. So, note takers. Number one was fear and the empty heart. Number two was deception and the unregenerated spirit. Number three was a monster at the door. <laughs> Just kidding. If you didn't hear that, I'd like to point that out to you. That there was a noise out there. Number three. Number three, perversion and the twisted mind. All right? You got that? Perversion and the twisted mind. So here's round two uh, with the whole marriage thing. Another scheme to trip David up. Uh, verse 20, oh, happy day, one of his more crafty, apparently, um, daughters has a crush on David. Beautiful, uh, he thinks. Uh, Have I got a present for you, Davy boy? Now, the word he uses about marrying off his daughter to David is snare, but in the Hebrew, it's bokesh. It means to set a trap. So, Michal, or Michael, is a trap in two ways, potentially. Number one, he knows that Michael has this character or heart issue, maybe. Perhaps that she will be a snare as a wife, unfortunately. The kind of Mrs. Job. You remember Mrs. Job? She was not much of a support to her husband when he came upon hard times. Chapter 2, verse 9. When the Lord's hand was against Job... He lost everything, but he was still praising the Lord. And his wife said, how long will you hold on to your integrity? Curse God 
and die. Well, how lovely. <laughs> you know where they met? E-Harmony. <laughs> so much for that. Sorry. I, I don't have anything against E-Harmony, by the way. And, and I don't know anything out there. So what's her problem? Is she self-centered or quarrelsome? You know what the Proverbs say about living with a quarrelsome woman? Uh, Proverbs 21 and verse 9 says, It would be better that you live in a little closet in an attic, shut up in a little 9 by 5 hole, than, sorry, I'm just adding, than to live with a quarrelsome wife. Or Proverbs chapter 21 verse 9 says, it would be better, better for you to live in the middle of a desert alone, out with the rattlesnakes, <laughs> than to live with a quarrelsome wife. Here's a nice quote about that. Saul knows the power of a bad marriage and the need for a leader to have his heart and home at rest and at peace, to be respected and cared for, not manipulated and controlled. Dr. Laura, who's off the air now, who I listened to because I was a commuter for 10 years, uh, she had some good advice. She said, if only women knew the power to invest in their own happiness by taking care of their men, nurturing their needs, warmly making it their first priority to care for them. Now, ladies, if you're saying, well, he, just stop. Just stop. This week, it's your turn. Next week, it'll be his. All right? But this week, just accept that. Just hear the Holy Spirit at work. Because next week, the Holy Spirit will have your husband as well. That's how it happens. So the second way the dowry could be a marriage trap is the hundred dead Philistine bride price. Now, verse 22, through private channels... Uh, he sends attendants to lie. Hey, listen, Davy, the king really, really likes you, and all his staff adore you. Now listen, hey, make a deal. Be the king's son-in-law. And so David is just still a little bit hesitant again. And then he says, you know, I can't afford to pay the dowry, even though I shouldn't have to. He doesn't say that. Tell you what I'm going to do. Tell him the king doesn't want a dowry, just a hundred dead terrorists. And those are what Philistines are. Philistines foreshadow what you see over there with the Jew-hating population. The Philistines are like them. So when you picture them, I picture them hooded with machine guns. It doesn't work with the machine gun part. But uh, that's what you should be picturing, that kind of person. Well, what's he asking for? He's asking for death of the terrorists and then to desecrate their bodies. Now, there's something twisted about Saul. He's a real sick puppy. And this is pure evidence of that. However, he's thinking, listen to how he's thinking. Middle Eastern men will find out the soldiers, the Philistine soldiers, will be so enraged, thinking this is David's idea. Look what David did. Not only did he kill our brothers, our comrades in arms, but 
then he desecrated them in the most heinous, unspeakable way. Now, in Middle Eastern cultures, it will be a great joy and honor and privilege for any of those Philistine men, no matter how long they live, to hunt that man down who did that to them and kill him. This is what's twisted thinking is going on. He wants to, to put, uh, what do you call those curses of uh, uh, fat, fatwa, right? An Islamic curse on somebody, the death sentence. He, he wants that to happen. He wants them all to hear, this is what David is like, this is what David did. And so just like we see with just a, a little 14-minute video clip on YouTube, the whole Middle East on fire. That man can never live one day in public for the rest of his, for the rest of his life because there will be men who will, will be their dying wish to take that one guy who desecrated their important man, Muhammad. That's exactly what Saul's thinking. Now he's going to get a whole nation of men to think, I'm not going to go to my grave until I kill him for what he did to our boys. See? There's a, there's a method to his sick madness. And uh, unfortunately, it's not going to work. You know what? It would have worked. But guess who is David's refuge? The Lord, God, is his refuge. So that's not going to happen. So David's all for ridding Israel of suicide bomber-type occupiers. And so he goes out, and he doesn't kill 100. He kills 200, because David's that kind of guy. He's not like Saul. He's David. He's like, he's like Jesus, his future ancestor. Somebody asks you to go to one mile. He goes two. So verse 27, another, yet another failure for Saul's schemes and the look on Saul's face when David comes back successful, alive in the whole nine yards. So Saul's like, okay, uh, let's have a wedding here. And so David marries uh, Michael. And uh, I don't know. I was thinking what kind of wedding they would have and, and maybe Saul's influence. Maybe I, I was picturing just as something funny in my head, uh, centerpieces on all the tables at the wedding, and instead of flowers, they could be like little mouse traps because she's a snare to him, right? So maybe she's holding a bouquet. Uh, never mind. So Saul now in verse there, verse 27, becomes obsessed until his pathetic visit to a fortune teller in 14 chapters, and then his pathetic suicide. All, listen to your text, all his days from then on. And, and verse 28 is the most amazing verse in the whole chapter to me. He realizes, Saul realizes the Lord is with David. Look at your verse there. The, Saul realizes the Lord is with David. Therefore, he resolves to be David's enemy. Instead of burying the hatchet, which is a bad idea to give to Saul because he would bury it in the wrong way, but instead of becoming reconciled, when he sees every plan is backfiring, now, now what? And, and here's what verse 28 says. He says, 
Michael loves him and she's actually happily married to him and he's my son-in-law. This is all going so terribly wrong. It's not supposed to be happening. And then he gets it. Hey, the Lord is with him and responsible for this success, even though I'm trying to get rid of him and annihilate him. And he gets it and he says, and I'm going to remain estranged from him and fears him again. He's driven by fear. That's just an amazing thing. Repentance and a changed life for him and a chapter of beautiful verses about his life was one heartbeat away. Repentance is just a change of heart. And all he had to do was right after that verse, I can, I can see it uh, where it says, and then he realized the Lord was with David. So he stepped forward down from his position and he decided he would help David make a smooth transition to the kingship and 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 he retired from that position and was used by the Lord to be a help to the to the Israeli armies and and he was a happy grandfather and all the days of his life he he just praised the Lord and he did more good from the end of this time until his end of his time, then all the bad he did before. You could have read that. You could have read that. And all of our lives so easily changed the course of our destinies. So simple, a breath, a prayer. I love Romans chapter 10 just coming to my mind where, where Paul says, it's not hard. It's not like he's asking you to climb up a ladder to heaven and pull Jesus down so he can come and die for you. It's not like he's asking you to descend into Hades and raise Jesus from the dead. No, he says, what is it? It's on your lips that if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that, Je that, that Jesus is alive, that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The whole point is how easy and the horror to me of hell and a ruined life is how simple and easy God had made it so that it didn't have to go that way. At any point in your Christian life, wherever God takes you from this sanctuary tonight, it's a breath away, a change. Where you get off track, you're headed the wrong way, you don't like how it's going, you sense this isn't God's will, what have I done? It's a prayer away, your lips, your heart, done. But Saul said no, maybe tomorrow. And maybe tomorrow was chapter 14 away, surrounded by the bad guys, rather than have, he gets wounded, and he takes his sword and he falls on his own sword after going to a fortune teller to figure out his messed up life. Don't be like him. Be like David. Let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Let's allow God to promote us and bless us. Let's be led in love, not driven in fear. And let's let God fight our battles. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and your joy that you've given us. We know you're for us, you're in us, you're working through us, and we want to cooperate with you. Oh, Father, help us to be more like David than Saul. We all have a sinful nature, and we all can identify with King Saul. But you said that the Holy Spirit, if we live in the Spirit, we won't fulfill those nasty desires and those self-centered ugliness. So help us, Father, to crucify those passions and the ungodly longings that misdirect and misguide, get us into a heap of trouble. Let us be more like David, more in love with you, more filled with faith in Christ's name. Amen.